Those of you who were here Sunday morning know the rule. If you want to time the sermon, it's okay, but I'll tell you when to start. <laughs> um, and I should tell you, by the way, there's no reason to rush because according to weather.com, the rain is scheduled to end at 8.15. <laughs> First of all, I cannot thank my friend and your friend, Rabbi Charles Sherman. Charles, for his so beautiful, so welcome, and partially true introduction. <laughs> but it's true that we go back a long way, and we go back not only in great friendship and affection, but in great mutual respect. I have said on occasions private and public that one of the most able rabbis in our movement is the rabbi who sits to my left right now. <clears throat> and when I say able, I mean in the nitty-gritty of synagogue and congregational life, and as you all attest, and the relationship here attests in the breadth of service to and building of the greater community. And I'm also honored that he recommended me for this. Um, and I hope he will not go down in history as the one you don't consult anymore. <laughs> I also want to thank everybody here for the warmth of the welcome. I, I'm running out of words for it, uh, but particularly I want to thank the clergy and those others who have been here at every occasion when I was here. I have a special thanks for Reverend David Wiggs and Mary. They have made me so welcome. They have made me like part of their family. And while I can't tell you what to do in this world, and I don't know what you have scheduled, I'm hoping that tomorrow evening they will be sitting at a table which is big enough for two. <laughs> I don't know what your church does all the time, but I do know that the pleasure I've had in being here has been the result in part of an enormous output of energy, Bill, other Bill, I don't want to start naming names, but people who have made it easy. So pleasant, in fact, and with this, I will almost let you time. If I ever move to Tulsa, I now know I'll have to have a dual membership. And of course, that's fine, because in the hallway right out there, I have my dual membership. <laughs> Temple Israel, Broadway Avenue. So, there's an old Jewish joke in which two parties come to the rabbi to decide who's right in a dispute, because the rabbi was supposed to be a judge. And one makes his case, and the rabbi says, you're right. The other one says, wait a minute, rabbi, you didn't even listen to what I have to say. He said, you're right. And so the other one makes his case. The rabbi says, you're right. And with that, the rabbi's secretary says, rabbi, you said he's right, and you said he's right. How can they both be right? And the rabbi says to him, you're right. <laughs> That joke, which we do not share often with groups outside our people, 
is designed to uh, poke a little fun at rabbis. It makes fun of rabbis as judges and their inability or unwillingness to make a decision one way or the other. But that story has a somewhat more subtle meaning, in my opinion. Is the rabbi foolish, or is there more here than meets the eye? When I teach about the Jewish way of seeing the world, I always begin by putting on the board, in the case of a classroom, these words. And I want you to listen carefully because you have to work with me. Members only know visitors allowed. And I ask my class or the group, what does that say to you? And inevitably, inevitably they say, it's exclusionary, it's keep out, it's restrictive, it gives a negative message, you're not wanted. <clears throat> Members only, no visitors allowed. And I say to them, you know, there's another way to punctuate it. You could put it this way. Members only, question mark. No, exclamation point. Visitors allowed, exclamation point. <laughs> the classic Jewish way of looking at the world is, in fact, to find all the meanings. We call it midrash. It is the way Jews look at biblical text. So that when someone says to me, it says in your Bible, I immediately also have registering, if there is something, what I know about what some of the results of midrash, the search, the exploration, has been over the centuries. Ultimately, we might have to choose one or another as the interpretation that we most follow, but never because it's the only possible understanding, whether of a biblical verse or a living situation, then or now, never because there's no room for shadings or contradictory meanings. There's another Jewish saying, Rabbi Sherman will be well familiar with that, where you have two Jews, you have three opinions. But they do agree on what a fourth should give, or a third should give to charity, but that's another story. <coughs> Pardon me. We know, <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> we know from the Bible, well, probably been here for three days. <coughs> At least you didn't substitute vodka. We know from the Bible that even God can be led to change his mind when confronted with a cogent alternate interpretation or reason about a situation. In Genesis, you don't believe me, in Genesis, God comes to tell Abraham, his friend, that he is about to destroy the wicked cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. But Abraham says to God, Will you destroy the righteous with the wicked? Shall not the judge of all the universe do justice? What if there are 50 righteous? God says, you're right. If there are 50 righteous, I'll spare the cities. And then it's 40, and then it's 30, and then it's 20. It's the original art of the deal. Uh, there's not even 10, and the cities are destroyed. And that's what we usually remember. But the fact is that God is moved by hearing another point of view, almost as though God says, I never thought of that. 
I never thought of that. After the sin of the golden calf, God is enraged, and he tells Moses, I will destroy this people, and I'll create a new people out of you. It's very interesting that we have the five books of Moses, but we don't know any descendants of Moses. The children of Israel, the Jewish people, we have no one who can say, I am descended from Moses. God says, I'll create a new people out of you. And Moses says to him, why would you let the, if you do that, the Egyptians will say, he only took them out of slavery in Egypt to kill them in the desert. And the Egyptians may say that you don't have the power to fulfill the promise of taking them into the land of Canaan. In a remarkable statement, Exodus 32 says, Adonai al asher diber And the Lord repented of the evil or relented from the evil that he said he would bring upon his people. God gets talked out of what he planned, because there was another interpretation, another way of looking at it. While Judaism begins in what you call the Old Testament, what we call Tanakh, or the Hebrew Scriptures, the ongoing development of much of Judaism, as we know it, came from the rabbinic interpretations and teachings that followed the age of the Bible. Shelves of volumes take up the space and incorporate and contain post-biblical Judaism. Like a modern legislature, the ancient rabbis tried to find the right way in every imaginable situation, delving, probing, looking for all the meanings. Eventually, when it had to be a matter of law, it came down to a majority-minority vote, as simple as that. But centuries later, we often still have both opinions, the majority and the minority. So it's no surprise that the Talmud tells us that two schools of thought, the school of Hillel and the school of Shammai, disagreed on many things. And the Talmud says, for three years, there was a dispute between Hillel and Shammai, the former asserting the law is in agreement with us, and the latter saying the law is in agreement with us. And then Abat Kol, a voice from heaven, announced, Elu ve'elu divrei Elohim chayim. These and these are the living words of God, or the words of the living God. You could read it either way. These and these. Well, that's no help if you have to make a decision. Like, can you have chicken with, or with milk or not? I know this is a big problem for you but we've already established the fact that you don't care, it's, ribs are okay. So, <laughs> so both are the words of God, but you have to have a decision. How do you make the decision? You have a drawing of a card, as in Nevada, or a flipping of a coin, as in New Hampshire. <clears throat> How could both offer But the voice from heaven went on to say, but the law is in agreement with the rulings of the house of Hillel. So the question was why? If they're both right, if they're both possible, if they both make sense. And here's what it says, what the interpretation in years to come 
became. Why did God choose one as right over the other or as privileged while both were right? If both are the living words of God, what entitles the words of Hillel to be the law? And here is the answer. Hillel's words are chosen because they were kindly and modest. They studied their own rulings and those of Shammai and were even so humble as to mention the words of Shammai before their own. In other words, think about our world. How unlikely that a school of thought, a position, would be chosen as the right one, not because of its intrinsic superiority or because of the force with which it was delivered, but because of the civility of its proponents. How different from a world where news programs, again and again, ostensibly committed to informing us, seem to choose guests who are diametrically opposed to each other and who try to outshout each other. What a difference from giving precedence to those who are kindly and modest, who examine their own ideas and those of the other side and are so humble as to give the other side first mention. What a remarkable way to make a decision. We live in a world where polarization has become a high art, almost a virtue. I don't have to tell you, and I didn't write this about the election season. The election season wrote itself into this. In our political culture, two sides increasingly demonize each other. In our popular culture, the put-down, edge, have become an art form. Simon, an American idol, became a pop icon because of his ability to insult. People have become to know buzzwords. You're fired. You're eliminated. You're off the island. You lose. In The Bachelor or The Bachelorette, I am told. <laughs> In The Bachelor or The Bachelorette, maybe the most interesting part is who doesn't get a rose and how he or she reacts publicly. In this election season, it's especially evident that not examining what the other side says is the rule and not the exception. I have liberal friends who are astounded, if not ashamed, that Jeannie, my wife, and I watch Fox News Sunday because we think it's a good program. And I have friends who absolutely would never read the New York Times because it couldn't have anything true because it's liberal. I have no illusion that one side has all the answers. Yet thoughtful liberals, thoughtful conservatives often capture different parts of complex realities. F. Scott Fitzgerald, to my knowledge, to my knowledge, F. Scott Fitzgerald didn't know any Talmud. I think it's a fair statement. But he echoed the Jewish tradition that I gave you about Hillel and Shammai. He wrote, the test of a first-rate intelligence is the ability to hold two opposed ideas 
in the mind at the same time and still retain the ability to function. We sell ourselves short when we assume that if you believe X, then you can't afford to consider whatever truth there might be in Y, to hold two opposed ideas in the mind and still function. It is possible to choose one way without demonizing the other or needing to label it foolishness or nonsense. Father John Jenkins, the president of the University of Notre Dame, writes about persuasion as the path to civility. Persuasion. He says, what if instead of dealing with opponents by demonizing them and distorting their views, we were to take some steps to persuade them? I don't mean to suggest that one could persuade a stalwart partisan to switch parties, but perhaps one could persuade another that a particular policy or position is not as bad as you think. He continues, if I am trying to persuade others, I first have to understand their position, which means I have to listen to them. I have to appeal to their values, which means I have to show them respect. I have to find the best arguments for my position, which means I have to think about my values in the context of their concerns. I have to answer their objections, which means I have to work honestly with their ideas. I have to ask them to listen to me, which means I can't insult them. If we earnestly try to persuade, he says, civility takes care of itself. It's not written on my page now, but we had an example of it just recently. Two dear friends on the Supreme Court Ruth Bader Ginsburg, virtually the, the ultimate liberal, and Antonin Scalia, the ultimate conservative. Not only did they maintain a friendship and go to the opera and cook together, but Ruth Bader Ginsburg said she appreciated Antonin Scalia's opinions, which he wrote because they made her sharpen hers, which were inevitably on the opposite side. Vice President Joe Biden talked about the same kind of thing. He said that questioning the judgment of those with whom we disagree is always acceptable, but presuming to know their motives is often a pitfall. Those of us who are pro-choice, I give this quick example, those of us are, who are pro-choice sometimes are given to saying about those who are anti-abortion, well, they're not prepared to take care of the children who will be born. Well, I don't know that. I know that they're anti-abortion. I might have to look at their reasons, and perhaps it's one of those places we will never agree, but we may agree to understand the other side without imputing to them wrong and evil that is not part of why they are who they are. From the Talmud 1800 years ago to F. Scott Fitzgerald to a contemporary college president and then to a minister of the United Church of Christ, Speed Lees, funny name, Speed Lees, who is an outstanding, outstanding conflict resolver 
and has worked for many years with congregations throughout this country. At Speedley's says that conflict goes like this. On the lowest level, there's a problem, and we're all focused on solving it. But then there's a next level that becomes win or lose. And now we're not focused on the problem any longer. We're focused on the person. I have to win, and therefore he has to lose. And then next is getting rid of the other side. The talk moves from issues to principles. There is something wrong with them. They are selfish or cruel or naive. You can fill in the blanks. And finally, there is a total focus on personalities and the conviction that the other must be destroyed. From the Talmud to Joe Biden, the message is the same. Seeing two sides, hearing the other when you disagree, being open to the possibility of more than one way to see things is the sign not of weakness but of strength. There must be for all of us a short list of non-negotiables, but a very long list of areas in which we're ready to hear another point of view. And the short list must not grow too long, and the long list cannot become too short. Whether in politics, religion, family life, or community, a neighborhood or a world, the mandate is the same to be open to the opinions of others, prepared to listen to what may disturb us, to give respect unless there is clear reason not to. It was said much more simply in your tradition and in mine. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, and I quoted in another context, blessed are the peacemakers. The peacemakers, perforce, hear more than one side for they will be called the children of God. And long before that, the psalmist said in Psalm 34, Seek peace and pursue it. I want to close with the words of Rabbi Mordechai Kaplan, the founder of yet another movement in Judaism, Reconstructionism. Rabbi Kaplan said this. He said, From the cowardice that shrinks from new truth, from the laziness that is content with half-truths, from the arrogance that thinks it knows all truths, O God of truth, deliver us. Amen.